so I'm hyperventilating a little bit. If I fall over, pick me up because I've got some things to say. Though we adore men individually, we agree that as a group they're rather stupid. That men are essential for procreation, but when it comes to pleasure, unnecessary. Dinosaurs eat men. Woman inherits the earth. Safety lights are for dudes. Safety lights are for dudes. <laughs> well, put some skates on. Be your own hero. Hey, the New York Lord, please give it up for the dazzling vocal stylings of Miss Skimmer. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Citizen Dame. We are not the Baby Yoda podcast, although we are very gradually shifting in that direction. I am certain that Baby Yoda will be mentioned again and again and again because Baby Yoda is our everything. Baby Yoda uh, forever. <laughs> <laughs> I am Lauren Humphreys Brooks, and with me, as always, is Karen Peterson. Hello. And today, I think we've got a lot of interesting stuff to talk about. We were off last week, so of course, of course, that meant that all sorts of things happened. Of course, they wait until we're gone. Exactly. We can't have a light news week on the week that we decide to take off. Um, But so there's a lot of stuff that we can talk about. And one of the things that I wanted to start with was this conversation that has gotten going about Martin Scorsese's The Irishman, specifically, and the roles of women in The Irishman. One of the things that has come up a couple of times, The the Irishman uh, premiered on Netflix, if you have not seen it, Go see it. It is a great film. And you can actually pause it halfway through and, you know, go and do something else and then come back to it. It's amazing. My God. Uh, it is a three and a half hour film. So it, I, I do actually recommend doing that. I watched it in two parts as well, uh, mostly because otherwise my parents would just fall asleep in front of it. And then I would have been like, guys, you missed the entire last half of the film. <laughs> Uh, But one of the interesting things that has come up in this discussion of the Irishman is the role of women. And of which there are not that many to begin with in the film. Um, But one of the interesting things that has been discussed is the casting of Anna Paquin as Frank Sheerans, who's the Robert De Niro character's, the main character's uh, daughter. And her relative lack of lines, I think in total across the entire film, she has something like five or six lines of dialogue. Um, But she's a very important character. She's a very, uh, she has has a good bit of screen time actually, but there's a sense in which her silence is a part of that. And she really doesn't say much. Generally, the women in the film don't say much, even though they're present. So I think we wanted to talk a little bit about what that meant, how we interpreted it. There have been a lot of different responses to it. Some people have said that this is indicative of Scorsese being sexist, of kind of treating women as these, uh, you know, ciphers or ancillary figures. This has also been referred to um, in terms of some of the discussions that got going about Tarantino's films and the relative silence of Margot Robbie in um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and the lack of dialogue that Tarantino gives to women as opposed to men. Um, of course, this we've talked about this before, and we've talked about the issues of using dialogue as the sole kind of evidence uh, of whether or not a film is being sexist, whether or not, you know, how a film uh, deals with, uh, with female characters, particularly in the silence of women. So, Karen, what do you 
what is your opinion about this? I have a lot of thoughts. Uh, <laughs> so do I. Yeah. Well, this whole thing, I think, really does show... Um, we've talked about this before, about how, you know, you brought up Tarantino. And, I mean, he basically... What he does is just copy other people. And I think that this shows... What happened this year with his film and Scorsese's film shows how true that is and how he really doesn't understand the masters that he tries to emulate um like scorsese because the comparisons there and i think what what happened with the irishman wouldn't have happened if there hadn't been such a big deal about margot robbie in once upon a time in hollywood because first of all anna paquin is in the movie quite a bit but she's also only half of the character because a lot of the movie is spent with a little girl named i think it's lisa galena who plays the younger version of peggy and also doesn't have a lot of dialogue but of course nobody cares about that because she's a child and she's not a famous actress that has an academy award so but uh but it's just funny because if you look at at what's happening with Peggy Sheeran in The Irishman, and you look at what's happening with Sharon Tate in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, their characters have completely different reasons for existing, and what they do with their silence is totally different. And so this is one of those things where I, I had to tell people, like, you can't just count up the lines of dialogue and say, well, see, this proves something, because it doesn't. You have to look at what is being done with with that dialogue, with the lack of dialogue. And so in the case of The Irishman specifically, I think it's really powerful. And being someone who has had a very rocky relationship with my dad, there's been a lot of times where it was just, it was just the only way that I could really punish him when I was mad was to not say anything. He wanted me to talk. He wanted me to fight with him and argue with him because then at least that was something. And it was so much more powerful to just say nothing. And, and it really kept the ball in my court, you know? And that's what's happening here. Peggy Sheeran is so... I mean, sorry, spoilers a little bit for you guys that haven't seen it. But go watch the movie. Um, but when she's a child, one of the first things that we see for her is somebody is really mean to her at a grocery store and her dad drags her down to the store and beats the shit out of the guy right in front of her. And so she learns from an early age to be very careful of what she tells her father because she sees how he takes care of things and she doesn't like that. And so she spends so much of the movie just really quietly watching him and observing what he's doing. And it's very powerful. And so then later when Anna Paquin is swapped out because time has passed now she's older that continues and it's a really i think what anna paquin does is really beautiful and to suggest that martin scorsese doesn't know what he's doing is really to not understand what martin scorsese is doing because everything Mm -hmm. is so so calculated and so perfectly developed and and drawn out he knows exactly what he's doing with these characters and he does it all for a reason yeah exactly i mean it it doesn't it doesn't read at all like an oversight. Like he was like, Oh, I hired Anna Paquin and then I didn't give her any lines. You know, it, it's, yeah, it's a deliberate choice. And, and as you, as you say, from the time that we meet her when she's a small child, she is relatively silent. She hardly says anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the, and the point being is that not that she doesn't talk, she obviously talks to other people. She does not talk to her father. 
And of course, this entire the the entire film is told from Frank's perspective. It's about it's him looking back on his life, uh, and so he knows that he that she doesn't talk to him. But her presence is pretty consistent all the way throughout the film, and she's referred to a number of times. You get the scenes between him and her and and Russ, played by uh, Joe Pesci, where Russ is constantly trying to uh, to connect to her at some level and she's terrified of him basically and he even says to frank at one point you know i understand why she's scared of me you sh- she shouldn't be afraid of you uh and that's there are those moments in that film where it's really powerful and frank obviously just has no understanding of first of all understanding of why she would be afraid of him um mm-hmm. or of what he could do or could have done that that like you're saying the only way he's able to express his love is through violence like that's the first time we see him with her is like i'm gonna go down and beat up this guy who who mistreated you and it's like okay well that what that shows is that the way you deal with things is through violence and then much much later in the film one of his other daughters who uh i'm sorry i don't even remember her name again she has relatively few lines but she actually directly says to him you know we couldn't come to you because we knew what you would do Mm -hmm. we were afraid constantly and and like you're saying that's something that uh that peggy never gets to say to him but there's also a a consistent rebuke going on throughout the film of like i'm not going to engage with you and that does mean that that she's not going to do any of the emotional labor that he's that he wants her to do he wants her uh and i i said this earlier in the week he he wants her to fight with him yeah he wants her to yell he wants her to you know he wants to apologize and for her to have some kind of a reaction to that and even if it's a negative reaction at least he's made some kind of an emotional connection with her and she's done some sort of work he's she has basically said I care about you because because uh, if she's mad at him, that means that she has some emotional connection to him. Uh, and she she doesn't even give him that. She doesn't give him the emotional labor that he's insisting on. And she just walks away from him and, and does not agree to engage with him, never engages with him. And that's a, a catharsis that he can never have. Um, right. And that is more devastating. So her silence in that case, like you're saying, her silence is far more powerful than if she had turned around and started screaming at him or cried or done anything really. Yeah. It's one of the things I was saying when we were talking about this on Twitter earlier in the week too, is that I think one of the reasons this is hard for men watching the movie to grasp is because of the fact that they are kind of a little bit, I mean, I'm hoping most of them are not, you know, mafia hitmen or whatever, but um, they're kind of in Frank's shoes where they think that, she kind of owes it to him to give him some of her attention and to talk to him. And so when she doesn't mm-hmm. give him that, the men watching the movie have a really hard time understanding that, understanding it because they also want that same catharsis that Frank wants and they're frustrated at not getting it. Whereas women watching it are like, well, yeah, no, fuck him. <laughs> you know, he yeah. doesn't deserve it. And I think it's because we, a lot of us have learned whether it's through a relationship with our parents, through a relationship with a, you know, a boyfriend of some kind. Um, we've been in situations where we have, we have learned that the most powerful thing you can do sometimes is to say nothing. Yeah. So, yeah. And I, one of the other things 
I've been thinking about too. It, it feels like 2019 is the year of people just misunderstanding movies. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't understand what's happening here because this uh, this conversation, this debate, this complaint, whatever it is, reminds me a little bit about the people who don't like Jojo Rabbit and who complain that it's about making the Nazis just look dumb or just look like buffoons. And it's like, okay, you need to go back and watch the movie again. This is from the perspective of a kid who doesn't understand that all these adult Nazis around him, with the exception of like the Stephen Merchant types, but, you know, Sam Rockwell and Alfie Allen and uh, Rebel Wilson, those guys clearly all know what they're doing is wrong and they have a lot of feelings about it and they're not happy with where they're at but they can't say that and so jojo because the story is from his perspective he doesn't get to see what we're able to watch unfolding in the background and similarly with the irishman because this is told from frank's perspective he doesn't understand why peggy won't talk to him but we can look at this and understand it yeah yeah, exactly. I mean, Frank is essentially functioning as an unreliable narrator. And in that case, so, so is Jojo. Uh, yeah. Because they, like you're saying, they don't understand necessarily, for different reasons, obviously, mm-hmm. but they don't understand what is actually going on around them completely, right? And right. But the, the film represents that for us. And uh, yeah, and, and I think it's extraordinarily important. I think that as, as film critics, but also just as regular viewers, you need to always pay attention to who the film is being focalized through. If someone is telling the story, who is telling the story? You know, is it an omniscient camera perspective that is just showing us everything? Or what is being shown and what isn't being shown? Um, how are we approaching these these different characters? One of the things that a, a couple of people mentioned, and I actually mentioned on our Twitter page, was the way that Peggy obviously connects with Jimmy Hoffa in the film. Right. And the way she's completely unable to connect with Frank. And they're like, well, why? You know, I mean, Jimmy Hoffa, Jimmy Hoffa is a violent man in a lot of ways. He's very loud and boisterous. And, you know, he's not a, a good person, particularly. But one of the things that you notice about it is that all of the scenes between her and Hoffa are like, he, he brings her ice cream. And he plays with her and dances with her. And, like, he acts as, in a lot of ways like a father figure. Mm-hmm. And he's kind to her, right? So she doesn't she doesn't see his violence. She doesn't see his anger. She doesn't see any of that because she's distanced from it. But he actually makes an effort to relate to her as a child and then a, and then as an adult to actually, you know, be like, I care about you and I care about how you feel and I care and you know, I love you. And that's something that her father, we never see her father doing that, whether he ever tried to and failed or not, we don't get that image. And so her connection to Hoffa really is about the fact that that he's kind to her in a way that her father never appears to try to be. Yeah. Well, and that's a really important point, too, because of the fact that the movie makes it very clear what Hoffa was about and who Hoffa was. It's not like it's trying to paper over... uh, him or rewrite history a little bit and say oh no but see he was a really sweet guy we just see those moments of him being sweet to peggy specifically which is again martin scorsese being very deliberate in how he tells peggy's story and how he lets us see what's really going on with her because if if it was just like you know there, if there was no reason for it then we wouldn't see the harder side of hoffa 
we would yeah. only see the ice cream guy and then it would feel like when you know when he spoilers apparently this is a spoiler alert but when Hoffa is killed <laughs> um yeah that came up in my other podcast but um then it would feel much more uh, shocking much more surprising out of the blue I don't know it just yeah. it would feel very differently but because of the fact that you see this duality of Hoffa where he's really sweet to Peggy but also doing this really you know skeezy stuff in the back you know behind the scenes and, and things and uh it's just more of more of exactly what you're talking about yeah yeah no exactly um in, in relation to this we did actually have a question on um the use of the women in in irish in the irishman as a whole from at film sports 21 uh asks what are your thoughts on the use of women in the irishman i noticed a lot more subtleties on my second viewing and i wanted to hear elaboration from female critics um so there aren't that many female characters really this is a very male film as a lot of scorsese's mob movies particularly are uh but there are female characters there's there's peggy both as a child and as an adult there are some little bits and pieces of frank's other daughters uh there is russell's wife um and frank's wife and actually frank has two wives one yeah of both whom, of his wives yeah mm-hmm. one of whom he he leaves part way through and then begins dating someone else and, and gets together with someone else um and there's also jimmy hoffa's wife so the, the women are generally the wives mother's daughters right uh but they do show up all the way through the film and they do have different functions within the film uh, none of them, beyond Peggy, none of them are really developed as major characters. These are very, very secondary characters. Um, and very, and for the most part, they don't have a lot of lines, and the lines that they do have are not, you know, these are not um, uh, really important things, I guess you would say. But they're present, and one of the things that I was just struck by um, partway through the film is that when Frank leaves his first wife for his second wife you know he says oh that's when my marriage ended mm-hmm. and there but what's odd about it is that there's no emotion to it there's no right. like again we don't see these scenes of the women being mad at him or any sort of kind of emotional connection between anybody really you know what we see is like oh i left my first wife and we see him going into ho- to a hotel with um, the woman who become a second wife. It's like, okay, but nothing really happens. I mean, it's, and in fact, I even was having difficulty in places figuring out uh, if one woman was the mother of his daughters or if, if, the, if it was his second wife. <laughs> and again, I feel that that is very deliberate, that there is a lack, throughout the film, there's a lack of emotional connection that Frank is able to form with anybody. The only person he seems to be really connected to in, in any real sense is Hoffa. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the women are not particularly important, even though they're present throughout the entire film. So I don't know. Yeah. What, did you, what did you think about that? Yeah. Well, the thing is that, I mean, I don't, know what it's like to be someone who goes around and beats people up and kills people for not paying up and things. <laughs> I would imagine there has to be something turned off in your brain to be able to do that to people. <laughs> and so I think that it makes sense that Frank would not be a generally emotional person because of 
how easily he's able to just, you know, walk by and shoot someone in the head in the middle of the street, you know? And so it makes sense to me that you wouldn't see a lot of emotional connection with with people. And especially in this world, the women aren't part of it. And so it makes sense that so much of the story wouldn't get into his emotional connections with the knee, like with either of his wives. And then the whole thing with his daughters, I think you already mentioned it, the line where the other daughter says, you don't know what it was like for us. I mean, that's very intentional. And I think that that sums up basically what's happening with all the women that are in the story is all of them are just on the sidelines. They're all observing this as we are. And the whole thing is that Frank doesn't ever consider what he's doing to the women in his life, which is made very obvious when he drags his seven-year-old daughter to down the street to watch him beat the shit out of someone. Mm-hmm. Or when he's reading the paper and there's a story about the guy that he just murdered the night before and she sees that and she knows it was him. Yeah. And he it doesn't occur to him that that might bother her. <laughs> and so, yeah, I think that it's very deliberate, the fact that the women are are in the background, aren't developed much um, when they're older, when they're making this drive to Detroit, because that it keeps going back and forth to. Um, and the women are sitting in the back seat, the wives, and it's like, just, you know, we need to take smoke breaks and things. And it's like kind of funny, but at the same time, it's, I think it's very symbolic of the fact that the women are just being dragged along on this trip that has a very specific purpose. And, it's not Scorsese not understanding how to use women or not valuing women in his films. It's that, you know, he has a very specific point to make. And I think that yeah. he makes it really well. Yeah. And there, there's there's one scene that I remember between um, Russell and his wife where, and I think it's Frank is narrating that, you know, she was actually the daughter of a mob boss. And yeah. so she, she's, She's a part of the mafia. She was born into a mafia family. Mafia royalty, yeah. Uh, and there's a scene where Russell comes, and it, again, very little dialogue, but Russell comes home, and he's covered in blood. And he wa- and he's walking up the stairs, and she says something to him like, you know, don't forget to put it in the laundry or something like that. Like, it's a very mundane statement. I think it's like, give me your clothes, I'll burn them or something yeah, like that. Yeah, there you go. Mm-hmm. That's right. But it's so it's it's this kind of like okay she she knows what to do right she mm-hmm. is used to this this is probably something that she this is something that she has seen her entire life from her father yeah. probably from her brothers from any men that she has been connected to because of the life that she has lived and there is this not dehumanization but sense sense of detachment that a lot of the women have that if they acknowledge what their husbands and fathers and relations do as hitmen and as mob bosses and as criminals it is a very mundane thing it's sort of like okay that's what they do but we're not really going to pay attention to it we're going to Mm -hmm. ignore it as much as we possibly can and just deal with what we have to deal with when we have to deal with it um and in a lot of ways there there is this referentiality to uh to other mobster films films like um as particularly to, to Kay's role in the godfather uh, mm-hmm. when Michael says to her, you know, don't ever ask me about my business, this, this kind of, we're going to split the women off at some level. And they, you know, they're responsible for the home as it were, they're responsible for this world, but it's also this detachment and dehumanization of them 
that makes them behave in a way that is not natural. It's not natural to look at your husband covered in blood and go like, oh, we'll get, let's be certain to get rid of your clothes. <laughs> right. Right. That is not a natural human reaction. Natural human reactions go like, holy shit, what the fuck did you do? <laughs> yeah. Or are you okay? Is that yours? Yeah. Like, what happened? Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and so, so much of the Irishman as a film is about dehumanization and is about the, the sort of lack of soul that you have to have in order to continue to do a job like that. Yeah. Um, and I think that the women reflect that in, in a very powerful way that, you know, we maybe don't necessarily notice at first, but that is, is a part of the whole um, structure of the film. Yeah. And now what I need people to do is go back and watch The Kitchen again and understand why it was so significant for three women to take over <laughs> a mafia family in New York in the 70s. <laughs> that film is really unfairly maligned. God. It really is. I know. God. I know. I'm still mad about that. Every once in a Same. while. <laughs> Justice for the kitchen. Justice for the kitchen. <laughs> uh, okay, so any other thoughts on the Irishman? Women in the Irishman? Um, Anna Paquin? <laughs> it's great. Go see it. And Anna Paquin is fantastic. And yeah. Justice for Anna Paquin. Quit complaining about her. <laughs> she was yeah, chosen really. for a reason and she did a great job. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so moving on, this is related to the Irishman. I think that we could talk about this for just a few minutes. It's it's kind of passe, but also I think it's interesting when it comes to talking about watching films on streaming and how we watch movies and stuff like that. Uh, so the Irishman is a very long film. It is three and a half hours. I think it is the longest that Scorsese has ever made, if not... If it's not the longest, it's very close. Uh, and, you know, this this is this occasioned a lot of discussion, including from us, about its length and about, you know, going to see it in a movie theater and things like that. The vast majority of people who are watching this film are watching it on Netflix. Uh, and so one person on, uh, on Twitter very, I think very intelligently, um, <laughs> split up the film uh, into what, you know, I believe he referred to it as episodes, but it's kind of basically turned it into a mini series. Just like, okay, here are the sections of the film that if you watched it in four different sections, here's how you could watch it. And I don't entirely agree with the way that he split it up. The film does definitely have an arc. It does build very slowly. Uh, I, you know, I really loved it. Um, but again, I watched it in two sections. I don't fault anyone for watching it in multiple sections. This occasioned a lot of people to get very angry about just the act of splitting up this film into smaller sections for those of us who maybe don't have three and a half hours to dedicate uh, to anything. You know, and and there were responses like, you know, it's a movie, respect the craft and watch it as the director intended. Um, There were all kinds of conversations about whether or not this is even an appropriate way to watch a film. You know, are you... So I, I guess that the question is, are we allowed to do this? Are we, is it okay to, to split up films into smaller chunks, particularly very long films like The Irishman, which is stretching out into almost four hours? Yeah, uh, I, was, I was really tired last night and I was trying to watch The Mandalorian and I fell asleep and I woke up and I watched the rest of it. And so like... That was a 40-minute show, and I had to split it up into two <laughs> sections. 
Um, my thing on this is like watch watch movies, watch TV shows, watch whatever you want to, however you need to. And I think that this original, I'm trying to give the original poster the benefit of the doubt that they were just trying to help people out. I mean, there is like a an app you can download. I can't remember what it's called right now. I've never used it, but that will tell you like when to get up and go use the restroom in a movie <laughs> yeah. if you're concerned about the runtime and things. Um, and so I, f- I felt like it was something sort of like that. I, I, like you, I didn't totally agree with where he was splitting things up, but, um, I think the, the problem that I saw was people acting like, why didn't Scorsese think of this? And it's like, <laughs> yeah, he did think of this. This was originally considered to be, or at one point they did consider making this miniseries and he specifically chose not to for a reason. <laughs> So it's like, I don't care. Watch things how you want to when you can. The important thing to me is like not how long it takes you to watch The Irishman, but that you watch it because it's a great film. <laughs> but well, yeah, exactly. don't act like you're some you're somehow more enlightened than Martin Scorsese in the best way to watch the story. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, it was a, I mean, it was an odd conversation. You know, it got blown out of proportion in the way that everything is blown out of proportion on Twitter. Um but I do find it interesting that I, I think we're both kind of the generation, um, and and you're you're older than me, but the, but we're still of the of a similar generation in the sense that we grew up with television and video stores and uh, the ability to pause films mm-hmm. and to fast forward through scenes and to rewind and to rewatch, uh, oh, yeah. which is something the previous generations just. Did, did not have as something that was available to them, right? And so, and streaming has made that even more available. So, like we're saying, a lot of the people who are watching The Irishman are watching it on Netflix, which means that even if you watch it in a single sitting, you're still going to pause it at some point because I, I certainly would because I would have to get up and pee. Uh, yeah. At the very least, you know, if not, pause it, get up and make dinner, get up and get something to eat order food you know all there are all kinds of things that you do when you're watching a film at home that you don't have the same availability for when you're watching in a theater um but this kind of preciousness of like no you must watch it as the filmmaker intended is very odd to me because it's like okay well does that mean that that you never paused a movie because if you if you paused uh lawrence of arabia which is a four-hour film that means that you did not watch it as David Lean intended. I mean, does exactly does that mean that you know? Did you go to see East of Eden in CinemaScope? Because if you didn't, uh, and I would be really surprised if you did, but if you didn't, that means that you did not actually see it the way that it was intended to be seen on a big screen in CinemaScope. So there's this really odd thing that gets going of like this is what the filmmaker intends, and you have to watch it the way the filmmaker intends. It's like. The filmmaker, first of all, doesn't have that say, right? We watch movies right. however we watch movies. Second of all, most of the films that we watch cannot really be seen as the filmmaker intended because of changes to technology, because of the way that technology even works right now. If you watch it at home, you're going to pause the goddamn movie. I defy you not to. Yeah. Well, so I was... This is going to sound like a brag, but I just wanted to give context to where I was when this happened. But I was at the premiere for The Irishman, and Martin Scorsese was introducing the film. And he specifically said in that introduction that 
the reason that it's on Netflix is because they were the only ones that would give him the money to make the movie he wanted to make. Mm -hmm. And this is Martin Scorsese. He didn't take it to Netflix because he wanted it to be on Netflix. He took it to Netflix because he kind of had to. And he would have intended for this movie to be seen in cinemas on the big screen. Yeah. Not at home in your living room. And so if you're really going to talk about that, how many of you drove four hours to the nearest theater that was playing it or hopped on a plane to go see it in L.A. so that you could see it on a big screen as Martin Scorsese really intended you to see it? Well, yeah, exactly. And I mean, now that has that has been a conversation about films uh, like this and about uh, was that last year. Oh, my God. Roma. Mm-hmm. Um Dear God, it has been a long time. <laughs> I know. Oh, what a long year it has been. Um, but <laughs> I told someone today, hey, remember Glass came out this year? And he's like, no, that's not possible. <laughs> that is impossible. Like, I refuse. <laughs> I refuse to believe that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, but so when, when Roma came out, there was a lot of talk of like, you must see this on a big screen. And the... Roma really only showed in major cities. And even then, I believe, for the most part, it only showed in a lot of uh, smaller theaters. Uh, it, it had a very limited release when it comes to being released on a big screen. So when you're talking about in order to be true to the film, and, and the undercurrent of that is in order to be considered a true cinephile or a true fan, um, you have to experience this film in a particular way, is extraordinarily elitist. It's saying yeah. that you have the time and the money and happen to live in the right place in order to experience these films that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I, I think that there, there's this tendency, and particularly, and we spend a lot of time on film Twitter, but you know, also just in reading film reviews and, a talk, and the way that people talk about films, there's this tendency to still elevate uh, certain types of films as being us versus them. You know, the true fans will go and see it in, a, in this way. We'll go and see it in the movie theater, you know, in surround sound or in IMAX or whatever else. Um, and the, everybody else, all of the, the little people, uh, <laughs> will watch it on Netflix or will watch it on Amazon or wherever it else it happens to be. And, of course, the goal for any cinephile should be see the movie. However right. you want to, however you want to experience it, however you're able to experience it don't listen to, you know, all of the people who are saying, like, if you don't see it like this, it's invalid. Uh, exactly. I mean, that for me, being, when, when I was a kid in, like, rural upstate New York, uh, I would have been very disappointed to know that, you know, I was seeing Psycho incorrectly and that, therefore, I wasn't a true fan or I wasn't a true cinephile. That would have been very disheartening. So I, I hope that this is, I hope that this is not reaching those kids, in other words. Right. Yeah, exactly. It it just comes back to watch watch movies how you can. And if yeah. you truly love movies, if you truly love film, quit discouraging people. Quit saying that they're watching them wrong. Just be glad that they're watching. And I think that's what it comes down to with Scorsese. He doesn't care so much that you don't get to see it on a big screen. He just cares that you watch his film and that you engage with it. Yeah, exactly. And I... I mean, there are other arguments to be made, you know, saying that the reason he went to Netflix is because uh, they were the only ones who gave him the money. But that is not the responsibility of the viewer, per se. That is the responsibility. That's an issue that is going on right now in Hollywood and with theaters and with studios is the fact that Martin Scorsese can't 
get a film made starring Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, and Joe Pesci. I mean, <laughs> dear God, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, the because I asked a couple of people about that afterwards, and apparently this what it is is because the movie was so expensive with the technology that they needed for the de-aging, there were a couple of studios who were interested, but only if he had younger actors instead of doing the de-aging. Mm-hmm. But you would have lost so much mm-hmm. because... Uh, yeah, some of the de-aging is a little bit awkward, and especially, I mean, the reason that I think that uh, De Niro looks a little bit weird is just because of his eye color. Yeah. He changes eye color when he's younger, but they leave his brown eyes when he's older, so that's weird, because nobody's eyes change from blue to brown in their life, but um, but it would have been a completely different movie if you had had younger Frank and younger Russell and, you know, younger Jimmy Hoffa played by different people it would have really lost the impact i think yeah of what of the story that he's trying to tell yeah you i mean you would have lost just that back and forth between al pacino and robert Mm -hmm. de niro i mean that's that's kind of that's a hard thing to say it's just like oh we just won't have that right yeah exactly exactly uh but, yeah, so it, it's an interesting issue. I mean, it's one that's going to keep on coming up because um, more and more films are being made by places like Netflix and they are being watched on streaming rather than in theaters. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how all of this continues to change and maybe how our reactions to it continue to change. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So let's see, let's move up to uh, just a small piece of information, news, etc., Susanna Fogel, uh, who is the director who directed um, The Spy Who Dumped Me, is... Yes, she did. Yes, she did. Uh, <laughs> which is a great movie, by the way. Like, there's there's so many people that I've recommended that movie to. I told you this. Uh, I recommended that movie to that were like, oh, that was good because I hated the title. And it was like, yes, it's good. I'm sorry. Yes, the title sucks. But it is a really fun movie. Mm-hmm. Um... And a really good example of female friendship. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, so her follow-up to The Spy Who Dumped Me is going to be a, a take on the Russian interference in the 2016 election, um, which is going to be sort of interesting. She is going to direct uh, Winner, which is a biopic about reality Lee Winner, the first person to expose Russia's interference in the 2016 election. Uh, and of course, for those who, who don't remember, this is coming from womeninhollywood.com, by the way. Uh, for those who don't know, uh, Winner was arrested in 2017 um, when she was suspected of leaking a report about Russian meddling in the election. Uh, and she is currently serving a five and a half year prison sentence. So she was kind of one of the, the first big stars, as it were, of the uh, discussion about Russian interference in the 2016 election, and which is leading up to the potential impeachment of the President of the United <laughs> States. So, you know, reality winner. Also, she has the best name in the world. Uh, <laughs> pretty great. <laughs> so, it will be interesting to see, I think, what Susanna Fogel's take on this is, especially in light of the spy who dumped me, which is, you know, it's a light film, but it's also very funny and, uh, and very much about, like you're saying, female friendship about, um, women facing off against really dumb men, uh, all of which is contained in this story of reality winners. So, uh, do you have any thoughts about that, Karen? Just that as soon as I saw this, I was really excited because I think Susanna Fogel has a very interesting perspective 
And I, yeah, I mean, I loved The Spy Who Dumped Me. We talked about that a lot. And so I'm really excited. First of all, I'm excited that she's getting a follow-up film. Uh, And then that it's this story, I think, is going to be, I'm really excited about it. Yeah. That's all. (laughs) I think think we're looking forward to that. And yeah, everyone Mm -hmm. who did not see The Spy Who Dumped Me, please watch The Spy Who Dumped Me. It's so good. Um, It's on Prime, right? Uh, it's, it's kind of moved around. For a while it was on Hulu. It might still be on Hulu. Uh, and I think it is also on Prime. Okay. Uh, so, let's see. Well, speaking of women and films directed by women, this is a little old, but I feel like we maybe at least need to mention it because we talk so much about films directed by women on this podcast. Um, BBC... <laughs> <laughs> asked a whole bunch of critics for their list of the 100 greatest films directed by women. Now, this is couched in a very specific way. It's the 100 greatest films. So not necessarily the best or the favorite, but, you know, the the greatest. Um, it's also films directed by women, which I'm always getting... I'm getting a little uncomfortable with that sort of formation now given that we've talked so much about female directors and there are so many great female directors and many of them can stand shoulder to shoulder with the great male directors so I feel like women should be included more in the discussions of the 100 greatest films not just the ones that are directed by women uh so Mm -hmm. there's that the other thing that that got me was that there are a lot of men that they asked this question of uh and I, I personally feel that women should at least be overrepresented. If you're going to talk about great films directed by women, you should overrepresent female critics. Uh, yeah. And and but one of one of the interesting things there's there's some great winners, and I think that uh, Anya Varda was uh, listed the most. Um, Jane Campion, uh, Andrea Arnold. Um, uh, Ida Lupino, who we've discussed a great deal. Well, one of the ones who kept on popping up on the list was Leni Riefenstuhl, who, as we all know, was Hitler's <laughs> filmmaker uh, and directed <laughs> Triumph of the Will and uh, Olympia, both of which are technically great films. I get, I mean, they are they are important films, definitely, uh, and definitely important films in terms of Nazi propaganda and the way that. She sort of. Const- I was going to say they were surely impactful. Very yes. I, there we go. Import uh, impactful, <laughs> impactful films. Yes. Uh, oh, but the God. fact that Riefenstuhl, who for a while seemed to be the only only female director that anyone referenced, uh, is still popping up on these great greatest films directed by women list. As, and, and one of the weird things is that so much of the response seemed to be almost apolitical. It was like they didn't want to talk about the fact that she was a literal Nazi making films about the Nazis to promote Nazism. And I, I just, yeah. I'm just amazed, I'm amazed that, that any critics in this day and age could look at, could think, hmm, great films made by women. Well, we have to include Leni Riefenstuhl on that. Uh, yeah, I don't know. What did you think about this, Karen? I was just like, are you fucking kidding me? It felt like a couple people just Googled great, or like, not even great, just Googled female 
directors before 1960 or something. Yeah. Just to make sure that they included some classic films in their list. The great <laughs> and classic. Just, oh, here's the one. So they just like, yeah, so they just picked her. That's what it felt like. It was just like, you can't be serious with this choice or you can't actually have seen her work. You just read something in passing reference to it you know like it's anybody who's being serious about a list like this especially because if you look through each of the critics listed 10 people so or 10 films so seriously out of all the films directed by women in all of film history you have to include her that seems to me like they actually didn't know what they were doing yeah, it, it does, it, it, it feels like exactly that, as, as though they're just like, oh, I can't think of a tenth person uh-huh. <laughs> or, or something. Yeah, it's very odd. And I believe, and I, I'm not 100% certain about this because I scanned through it fairly quickly, but I believe that they that very few people, if any, included um, Dorothy Arsner, who... Yeah, I haven't seen her. I'm actually scrolling through the list again right now. I don't see Dorothy Arsner. Yeah. I've seen a couple of passing references to Ida Lupino. Ida Lupino, and then, of course, the, the numerous uh, uh, silent filmmakers of, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, Alice Guy Blachet, um, Lois Weber, you know, these, these are not minor figures at all. And again, we've, we've begun talking a lot more about female filmmakers and sort of underrated female filmmakers, women who have not been talked about a great deal. There have been documentaries made about them. Uh, and, and it's it's weird that then what we're seeing, and you, you just kind of see a lot of repetition. There are a number of, you know, um, international filmmakers, uh, but most of them are very, very recent. Mm-hmm. So, oh, yeah. Most of these lists are 1990 and, and to today. Like, there's an occasional, oh, Barbara Loden, 1970 for Wanda, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. But it's like... Most of these lists that I'm scrolling through, there's one, like this one that I'm looking at right now, this person is from Turkey, and it's like, there's one film from 1966, and the rest, then the next youngest film is from 1992. Well, that, I mean, I guess that kind of explains why so many people put Lini Riefenstahl on there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just like, <laughs> oh, she's the only female filmmaker working, you know, pre-1950. Uh, yeah. So, guys, I'm, I'm begging you. I'm be- there's the, the thing is, there's no excuse for thinking like this anymore. Uh, there's so many good lists of female filmmakers. Criterion Collection on their on their channel has entire sections that are dedicated to female filmmakers and to showing films by female filmmakers. Um, Kina Lorber has collections of female filmmakers. Many of whom, you know, and, and that's not faulting anyone for not having experienced this, but at this point, you really, if you're a critic or even just a viewer, you need to go into the fact that there are so many women who have been working very very often without a great deal of fanfare, and we don't tend to remember their names immediately. But there are so many of them, just like, you should not be listing a Nazi Nope. There's there's never a good reason to list Nazis unless you're actually making a list of Nazis. <laughs> Just like as the gr- she is definitely the greatest Nazi filmmaker. There is no doubt about that. I mean, in terms of the best Hitler's best propagandists, I think that Leni Riefenstahl <laughs> is right up there. 
But <laughs> you don't get much better than her. Oh dear. Oh my god. Anyways, so like yeah, people, come on. What the fuck? Uh moving on. Yeah. <laughs> moving on into more politics. Let's talk about more politics before we move on to some happier things. Um, oh, but films aren't political. <laughs> More politics. All right. So this one came up and I nearly had a stroke. Uh, <laughs> this I thought about not tagging you and hoping you never saw this. But then I was just like, no, I have to know what she's going to say. So I think I would have seen it anyways, even if you hadn't tagged me, because I, yeah. it, it would have come across my feet and like, what in the holy God is happening here? Mm-hmm. So uh, for those people who do not know who Joe Bob Briggs is, uh, he is. You're welcome. Hmm? <laughs> For those who don't know, you're welcome. <laughs> he is he's primarily the host of uh what's it called? Joe Bob's movie drive in, I think it's called. Yeah. Uh on Shudder. And, you know, and he's he's entertaining. He's he kinda doubles down on this sort of red state figure. Um, but he's entertaining to watch, you know, the films that he shows are entertaining, etc. But recently, as as we possibly know there's a new version uh, a remake of black christmas coming out directed by a woman and written by a woman that is obviously telling a very different story uh using the same kind of template as the original black christmas in reference to this and specifically in reference to this Joe Bob Briggs took to Twitter, and this is what he said. What I love about directors from the 70s and 80s is that they had no political acts to grind, no message, <laughs> no social justification for horror. It was just, get a load of this great story. I don't want to be told how to watch a movie. So, leaving aside the fact that he is doing this in specific reference to a film, a slasher film, made by by women about women and at least based on the trailers about male violence against women mm-hmm. he is here claiming that the 70s and 80s have no political content that horror in in the 70s and 80s there is no politics contained <laughs> in those films and he did go on to try to clarify that oh actually you know the the filmmakers didn't think that they were making political films so they're they're not overt it's just like okay Still not true. Uh, And, of course, one of the ones that everyone immediately began referencing was George Romero's uh, uh, Night of the Living Dead, which features, among other things, a black hero in the 1970s who is shot by a white posse because they think he's a monster at the end of the film. That is what happens at the end of Night of the Living Dead. Now, the response to this has always been like, oh, well, uh, Romero only cast, uh, uh, only cast the lead because, because he, was the, he gave the best performance. Fine, I don't care. You still have a black man being shot by a white posse at the end of the film because the white posse thinks he's a monster. That's what happens in Night of the Living Dead. There is no way in fuck that that is not political. It's just a coincidence. Oh my god. It's just a coincidence that he's black. It's like, no, it is... Oh my gosh. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me with this shit? Um, This is also, you know, really good information for me as a woman. That when I watch uh, Halloween or when I watch any slasher film from the 1980s and I see a half-naked woman being repeatedly stabbed by a murderer with a phallic 
uh, weapon that this is not political and that this is just really entertainment, I guess. Uh, this, this is saying absolutely nothing about violence. This is saying absolutely nothing about female sexuality or anything like that. No, just bullshit. We could just leave behind all of the feminist analysis of horror from, you know, Barbara Creed onwards. We don't have to pay any attention to it. Not political. <sighs> Do you have any thoughts about this, Karen? Like, I, I'm just, I just want to light things on it- fire again. Yeah, well, I mean, this just comes back to what I I think some of what we were talking about before, about people having this weird idea that they know more about how to watch a movie than Scorsese does. Like, oh, you're, you gave us your movie wrong. We'll fix it for you. You know, it's, it's that, it's that same mentality of like, oh, these filmmakers don't know what they're doing. Uh, Just that conceit is so odd to me. And, and, but it's something that we're just seeing so much. And, I mean, I can only speak to now, I can only speak to the last couple of years that I've actually been working in this industry and actually interacting with people and and hearing the conversations that happen not as publicly and being part of some of those conversations. So I don't know. Maybe it's always been like this and there's just more of us now and, and Twitter is calling people out, you know. I'm not sure. But it just, this idea is People just need to get it out of their heads, and and I don't I don't even know. Film is political. All film yeah. is political. All of it, always. Well, all, all art is political. I mean, and all art is political. Yes, and and entertainment is political. And and again, even whether or not the filmmaker intends it, uh, you know, you're still making a film about a particular period of time. And you're making choices about what you're showing and how you're showing it. And there is a political context to that, uh, whether or not it is, you know, explicit, like I am now going to make a movie about violence against women. Um, and, and I think that one of the things that someone like Jeff Bob Briggs is objecting to, and that really that a lot of older, but also just particularly reactionary people object to is this whole idea that, that film is becoming more PC, that film is becoming more political. Uh, and that there are these overt intentions of making these movies about, you know, women and about or about black people or about violence being done by the white majority uh, to minorities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think what's really happening and what uh, what makes it the reason it seems like some of these films are becoming more political about, you know, SJWs, you know, oh, I'm so sick of that. But um, I think the reason is because you have, we're living in a time where women get to tell stories mm-hmm. and people of color get to tell stories. And so it's just that there are more options now. And so it, it the thing is, it, it's not that films are becoming more political. It's just that some of the, some of the topics are changing because not everything is filtered through a straight white man's perspective anymore. Not every film is told from a through by a straight white man anymore. Yeah. And it's not that those films weren't political. It's just that their politics are different. Yeah. And, and a lot of the films that we're seeing right now are, in fact, reactions to the 70s mm-hmm. and 80s and the 90s. Um, so one of the reasons why Black Christmas is being remade right now is because it's a it's a reaction to the kind of and people have talked about that, that that's the thing this is nothing new uh, the idea that the slasher film is an inherently misogynist archetype 
right. and and there are arguments to be made for and against that, and I think that some slasher films actually really do subvert that, and others don't. But one of the things that is happening is that we're actually reacting to that, and like you're saying, women and people of color, etc., are actually getting behind the camera, um, writing the scripts, and saying like, okay, this is something that I love, but it's also something that has been directed violently against me. Uh, at some level. And so now I'm going to take control of it and I'm going to do something different. I'm going to tell the story about the horrificness of white supremacy or the horrificness of male domination or misogyny. Uh, and that, that doesn't, doesn't say that, that the earlier films are um, worthless or anything like that. It's just an interaction between the two different elements, the, these different political perspectives, different historical perspectives. Uh, yeah. I mean, this is why Amy Jones had to make the Slumber Party Massacre as such an over-the-top screwball comedy type yeah. in some ways, because otherwise nobody would go see her movie because it's a slasher movie where the women, like, it flips it flips that a little bit where the women get to fight back and, and it's done much differently. And at it came out in 1982 in the middle of the hype of the Friday the 13th mm-hmm. and Halloween's and all of that. And... She wouldn't have been taken seriously as a filmmaker if she had tried to make a slasher film that was not just, you know, really funny. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, that has the, that is a guy with a gigantic trill. That's the killer. Yep. I mean, you know, (laughs) it's really hard to look at that and be like, totally not political. Mm-mm. Definitely not. Yeah. No, that's a, just a coincidence. That's just what they had ha- handy on set when they were filming. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Anyways, yes, horror is, has always been political. It will always be political, whether or not you want to admit it. So let's just move on from that. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, let's talk. Let's see. Where are we at? Oh, we've got a question. We've got a question that leads us very nicely into the review that uh that we want to talk about so uh this question comes from at blc agnew and his question is uh favorite character who doesn't say a lot but walks away with the whole movie example uh and so i was trying to think about this and honestly one of the ones that i could come up with was harpo marx who you know does not say anything and very often at least walks away with scenes if not with the entire film uh so, I mean, you could also say, like, I, I could be a real dick and say, like, Buster Keaton or something like that. Um, but, yeah, did you have any that you could think of uh, for this topic, Karen? Uh, I mean, Silent Bob. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but actually, the one that I thought of, which this does lead us into the next thing we're going to talk about, but um, Grandma and Knives Out. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh mm-hmm. my god. She's so great. <laughs> okay, and and uh the the second question that really leads us into um, not the discussion of knives. This Nizap. is a very important it question. It is a very important question. Bearded Chris Evans or clean-shaven Chris Evans? What is your point of view on this, Karen? I would just like to have Chris Evans, please. Either way, I will take him either way. <laughs> either way. I, I am actually partial to clean-shaven Chris Evans, uh, mostly because I'm not a huge fan of beards. 
You know, it's funny because I didn't realize I was until about a year or so ago. I realized I really do like beards. But I think in the case of Chris Evans specifically, I agree. I like him better clean shaven. Mm. It's, some, it's weird. Like when um, I think it was Infinity Wars where he shows up with the beard, yeah. right? Um, I was like, why does his face look more pointy when it's covered in a beard? <laughs> I don't know why that happened, but it was weird. So I would say, yes, clean shaven is better, but I just will take Chris Evans however I can have I mean, him. yeah, if he wants to grow a beard, that's fine. I'm, I don't have a problem with that. That's, you know, it's okay. It's your face. You do with it with what you want to just be there with your sweater. Uh, the, yes. The finest sweater. Be sure to wear sweaters. Mm-hmm. Um, so do you want to talk about Knives Out? I mean, I think we've both yes, seen I it. Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> we've both seen it knives out i'm seeing it again today actually with some friends <laughs> knives out is the new ryan johnson film that is a whodunit uh starring pretty much everybody um but particularly starring daniel craig and um and i can never pronounce her name correctly anna de armas yeah uh in which daniel craig plays a kentucky fried chicken um <laughs> private investigator who's investigating the death of this uh, uh, a mystery novelist um, just pro- just post his uh, his birthday when his entire family is gathered and of course everyone is a suspect including Jamie Lee Curtis and Tony Collette and uh, Don, Johnson. Don Johnson and Michael, Sh- Michael, Shannon. Michael Shannon and of course Chris <laughs> Evans who is there in his sweater and uh, so what did you think about it, Karen? I mean, I, I have many feelings about this film. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, okay. I first saw this at a film festival back in October and I was real. I'd been really excited about it. I mean, I'm a huge fan of Ryan Johnson. I think I've seen all of his films now. I'm not, I need to double check that, but um, I, I really like his style as a filmmaker. I love what he did with The Last Jedi and I'm really, you know. Just forever indebted to him for that. Uh, so I was really excited for Knives Out, especially with that cast. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, the clip where where Chris Evans is telling everyone to eat shit, like, I mean, what was not to look forward to? And so I was really surprised when I was watching the movie because I felt like, well, there's not really a mystery here. I know mm-hmm. pretty much exactly what's going on. Like, I figured it out pretty quickly. Um, like, all of it. And, but you know what? I didn't care because it's so much fun. The cast is great. They're all clearly having an awesome time. And I think that even though I figured out the story, it didn't take away my enjoyment of it because it's still just a really fun, fun murder mystery with a bunch of A-list cast together. And, you know, I, I mean, one of my favorite movies growing up was Clue. Mm-hmm. And so getting to kind of relive that joy again, I, I was just delighted. Yeah. What did you think? I, I absolutely agree. I love whodunits. Um, I love Agatha Christie and, uh, and PD James and, and all that. I like that sort of, I like that structure. I like the whole structure of a bunch of people who hate each other in a country house. <laughs> Everybody has a motive. Uh, and, and we're going to figure out who did it. And, and I like the, I, I, one of the things that I actually really liked was the fact that he did not set this in like the 1930s. It is set in the contemporary period. It references cell phones and Twitter and 
um, the alt-right and, and things like that. <laughs> but it still felt like that 1930s who done it. So he kind of proved that you can still do these kinds of films and these kinds of stories in the contemporary period, which I really like. I like the fact that we don't have to go all the way back to 1935 in order to do this kind of thing anymore. Yeah. Um, and I now I admit... I'm not going to do spoilers, but partway through the film, you find out some things. Yes. Uh, and then you begin to find out more things as the film goes on. <laughs> so there are a couple of twists that it takes. I was one of those people that I pretty much had figured what the solution was, but I wasn't quite certain how they were going to get there. Mm -hmm. uh, I wasn't certain how it worked. Not necessarily who had, who did it or... Um, yeah, yeah. Or how it had been, yeah. So it was more about how it had been accomplished, which is actually one of my favorite things about a lot of Agatha Christie's books, um, is that she does construct this where you might know who the killer is, or you might know what the solution is, but you can't figure out how to get from point A to point B. And that mm -hmm. was something that I think that this film did really well. Um, and so it does make it very pleasurable. The other side of it is, of course, like you're saying, the cast, the fact that everyone is having a great time. I think especially Tony Collette, who just uh -huh. <laughs> is like, I want, I wanted more of her. Even I, I was just like, can we please just spend a little bit of time with these people sniping at each other because they're so entertaining. Uh, um, I hope that there's deleted scenes on the Blu-ray. I really yeah, do. exactly. Like I just want to see that whole that whole birthday party scene. I just want that entire, that whole scene, it can go on for two hours, that's, that's fine with me, of just, like, <laughs> the family sniping at each other and getting nastier and nastier. Uh, uh -huh. And that, that really was the pleasure in this, that you don't really like these people, but they're very entertainingly unlikable. Right. Um, the other thing that I really liked, and uh, again, as someone who likes whodunits, one of the problems with whodunits, particularly from the golden age of uh, detective fiction, is that there's a lot of racism. And there's, mm -hmm. there's a tendency, even in the less racist uh, books, there's a tendency to, you know, treat anyone who is not white and not wasp and very often not rich as being sort of uh, dangerous or mysterious or potentially murderous. Uh, there's a lot of anti-Semitism. There's a lot of sort of, again, anti-anyone who isn't white. So if you're Mediterranean, if you're Italian, if you're um, Spanish, if you're Latinx, any of that is automatically like, oh, you are definitely a suspect. And if you're not a suspect, you are doing something evil somewhere along the way. Right. And I liked the fact that this film actually does centralize the story of, uh, of a Latinx woman who they keep, the family keeps forgetting where her family actually comes from. Like at one point <laughs> they say that she's, Oh, you're from Guatemala. You're from Brazil. You're from Bolivia, uh -huh. you know, and none of them seem to actually know where she's from. So I, and I don't think they ever actually tell us. I, I was trying to remember. I couldn't remember them. The, her mother might say, at some point, like maybe. maybe what they actually, what, like where she actually comes from. But there's, there's this whole thing of like, you know, oh, you're part of our family, but they have no idea where her family is from, why <laughs> she's there. And, and also, the, we wanted you at the funeral. I was outvoted. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and also the fact, also the fact that, you know, she's, she's their servant or they treat her like a servant. Mm -hmm. 
she's the caregiver. Even though she is an educated nurse, <laughs> she has a degree in nursing. She's the caregiver <laughs> of their father. You know? Yep. Uh, and so I really liked how that kind of undercut some of the issues that you do get in the 1930s whodunits. Um, and that very often is not directly addressed even in uh, later films that, you know, remake Agatha Christie's books or anything like that. So, yeah, it, it's loads of fun. I loved it. I, I do want to see it again. I want to see it again knowing how everything fits together. And <laughs> yeah. kind of being like, okay, do, you know, where are the clues? Where can I piece some of this information together? Uh, and stuff like that. So, yes, I highly recommend it. Do you recommend it, Karen? Oh, 100%. I actually watched it again earlier this week. I had an unexpected couple of days off of work. Long story. It was kind of fun, though. And um, yeah, so I was like, oh, I'm going to go watch Knives Out again. And I just loved it just as much the second time. And like I said, I'm going to go with some friends this afternoon that haven't (laughs) seen it yet. Because I just love it so much. It's so fun. And (laughs) I was watching a clip earlier this week. It was was a snippet of an interview with... um, or just like a conversation with Ryan Johnson and Chris Evans. And they were talking about some just favorite moments from when they were filming. And they were talking about the will reading scene mm-hmm. when Chris, the part where Chris Evans is telling everyone to eat shit. <laughs> and Michael Shannon ad-libbed a line that kind of drops. You don't, if you're not paying attention, you won't notice it. But he says, I will not eat one iota of shit. <laughs> And they were talking about that and they were laughing so hard remembering that day and how he just like, apparently Michael Shannon ad-libbed a whole bunch of hilarious <laughs> stuff that didn't all make it in. And I'm like, I want those scenes too. Yeah, I really do an extended cut. And it's fine if they don't contribute anything to the solution of the mystery. And it's like, can I just watch these people? <laughs> exactly. Please. Exactly. Please. Let's give me a Knives Out universe. Someone suggested on Twitter that... um the uh the Tony Collette and the Jamie Lee Curtis characters should like <laughs> get together and like run con jobs or something like that. And I would totally watch that. Oh, in a heartbeat, in a heartbeat. But I am excited because there's already rumblings about the next Benoit Blanc mystery. Yeah. And I will watch the hell out of it. Because this is the thing. Like, Daniel Craig is really funny. I've been bored with him as Bond. But he's really funny. And I want to see him do more funny roles. Yeah, yeah he's he's great. And, and I like the playing up of he the is. southern accent. And the comments <laughs> that people make about the southern accent. And, uh, <clears throat> yeah, and all of that. So, great film. Everybody go see it. If you have not seen it already, go see it. It's just... It's loads of fun. It really is. So what do you have on tap for this week, Karen? Oh my gosh, what do I have on tap so much? Um, I mean, it's in it's in the middle of award season. Yeah. So there's like the Golden Globe nominations are on Monday and I don't know how to deal with that. It's too much. Um, but this week I'm seeing Jumanji, The Next Level, which, you know, the last one was actually pretty fun. Mm. So I'm looking forward to this one. It looks funny. And then Black Christmas Ooh. as well. Yes. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that. How about you? Uh, I'm going to see A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, finally. Oh, yay! Which I'm looking forward to. Uh, and then I am... I'm going to watch Marriage Story, finally, because I kind of... I feel like I sort of should. Yeah. If you want to stay in the conversation, yeah. But yeah, this is how thrilled I am about that movie. Given that it seems very likely that it is going to get... Uh, 
a Best Picture nomination and things like that. And I, I do like having seen as many of the Best Pictures as possible. Um, and yeah. it's it's definitely going to get some other like acting nominations, screenplay things. So we shall see. But I and it's also on Netflix, so I can't really I don't really have an excuse like oh I don't have time to go to the theater to watch it. <laughs> it's like all right, fine. Uh, yeah, definitely tell me what you think of it when you see it, because I think I know how you're going to react to stuff, and I think we're going to be on the same page about it. Oh, bit. I promise you, you will know. You will know my feelings. <laughs> yes. I, I do not conceal those. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that is going to wrap us up, unless there's anything else you want to discuss, Karen. Mm, nope, just go see good movies. Yes, go see good movies. So, as per usual, you can get in touch with us in a multitude of ways. We are on Twitter and Instagram at CitizenDamePod. We are on Facebook at Facebook.com slash CitizenDame. You can email us with your questions, comments, games. We will delete any, like, bullshit comments that about how we're wrong about everything because screw you. Uh, that's at citizendamepod at gmail.com. We also have our website, citizendamepod.com, where we have reviews and editorials, and I've got my review of uh, The Irishman up there. Karen has hers about Jojo Rabbit. Uh, we're going to have some more editorials and reviews coming up within the next week or so, so look for those. Um, we also have a Patreon, of course, at patreon.com slash citizendame. And again, we really are grateful to our patrons. Um, you guys help us, like, pay for our hosting charges and pay to be certain that we keep the website up and that we continue to post the podcast and everything. So thank you guys so much. Um, if you want to contribute to our Patreon, uh, that's patreon.com slash citizendame, and we would be really, really grateful for it. Uh, if you want to buy some stuff, and I'm also going to put some more stuff up because I have buttons that I want to purchase, um, we have a Zazzle store at zazzle.com slash citizendame. And if you want to give us a little bit of money, uh, but you don't want to make a dedication to being a patron, uh, we also have a ko-fi. That's ko-fi.com slash citizendame. And of course, you can get in touch with both of us via Twitter and Instagram. Where are you, Karen? I am at Karen M. Peterson. And I am at LH Business. So that closes us out for this week. Talk to y'all later. Bye. Mr. Blanc, I know who you are. I read your profile in The New Yorker. I found it delightful. I just buried my 85-year-old father who committed suicide. Why are you here? I'm here at the behest of a client. Who? I cannot say, but let me assure you this. My presence will be ornamental. You will find me a respectful, quiet, passive observer of the truth.